Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, and we'll go ahead and go down to the catechism memory work. How can bodily eating and drinking do such great things? Certainly not just eating and drinking do these things, but the words written here, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. These words, along with the bodily eating and drinking, are the main thing in the sacrament. Whoever believes these words has exactly what they say, the forgiveness of sins. And the Bible memory work. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 1 Corinthians 11:26. All right, let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's morning prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have greeted me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right. Uh, Kids can go off to Sunday school. And the um, catechism memory work for today... Uh, We have a little bit more about the Lord's Supper, and I want to just highlight this Bible memory work specifically, 1 Corinthians 11, 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Uh, We recite that in divine service setting one in the the liturgy, not in setting three, Um, but it's a a very good verse, and what it does, uh, first and foremost, is it connects the... What Paul is doing is connecting the Lord's Supper with the passion of Jesus, right? That the Lord's death uh, is connected directly to the Lord's Supper, right? And um, Augustine is is very famous. Well, I mean, church, tons of church fathers and theologians and people just reading their Bibles for centuries have always noticed this, right? That um, there's this intimate connection between the idea of body and blood with what happens on the cross, right? That the the body is that's uh, the bread that's broken 
is like the body of Jesus. It is the body of Jesus that's broken on the cross, right? That's pierced on the cross. And the, the blood that is shed is the blood that comes out of Jesus' side when he's pierced. And um, so first and foremost, it connects us to that, right? And Paul does the exact same thing with baptism, right? That if we've been baptized into Jesus, that means we've been baptized into his death and resurrection, Right, so the cross, Jesus' passion, his death, his uh, his uh, resurrection, these things cannot be separated from the gifts that he gives. Right, they, the language that we often use is that these gifts they flow from the cross. Right, um, that these these gifts they come directly from what Jesus does on the cross. Right, and so they are the cross itself being applied into our lives on a, on a weekly and a daily basis, right? As we remember our baptism, as we receive the Lord's Supper. The other thing I want to highlight there is that when you eat the bread and drink the cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death, right? There's a proclamation or a confession that happens. And this has uh, something to do with so, so I think a mistake when we talk about the Lord's Supper is to talk about it in only in one way, right? So sometimes when we talk about the Lord's Supper, we talk about the forgiveness of sins or we talk about the real presence, right? But there's um, – or we talk about remembrance. But really all these things are happening all at once, um, and, and I think this is a – sometimes a mistake people make when they're trying to figure out, well, what about closed communion? How does this, how does that relate to real presence? Or what about, um, you know, reverence in the Lord's Supper? How does that relate to this aspect? It's all happening all at once. And, and um, maybe this isn't so much a, a problem. This is maybe more of a theologian problem than it is uh, a problem for, for people who are simply receiving from the pews, which is actually a more blessed thing, I think. But um, this idea that we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, this is something that's happening when we take the Lord's Supper, is that we're making a confession about who Jesus is, right, and and what he's done. And this is one of the reasons, I, I think, for, for closed communion, um, is that there is a real confession that's being made by someone who's partaking in the Lord's Supper. We're really proclaiming something about Jesus, right? And if, if that's the case, then we should be saying the same thing about Jesus, right? So um, that's that's one aspect of that. Uh, but it it's kind of a cool thing when you think about it um, that... So like Psalm 116, for instance, uh, some translations of Psalm 116 say, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Some of them say, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. And some of the translations say, um, and these are both correct translations, that I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Well, in English, we would say, well, there's a big difference between taking something and lifting something up, right? But in the Lord's Supper, actually both things are happening. That we are 
at once receiving from the Lord and we're also praising and magnifying and proclaiming the Lord with the cup of salvation. That both things are happening at once. And that's what I was kind of getting to is um, it's we can't just focus on one aspect of it, that uh, all of these things are happening all at once, and it's, it's truly an amazing thing. All right, anyway. Um, Enough about that. Any any questions on on the catechism memory work there or Bible memory work? All right. Uh, let's get on then to Zephaniah. So last week we had talked about the background of Zephaniah and we had talked about some of the main themes of Zephaniah. Yes. Yes. Does anyone else need a Bible? No. All right. Yep. You got it? Okay. So just by way of uh, quick review, Zephaniah uh, means the Lord protects. So this is going to be one of the ideas that is going to be in the background of of Zephaniah. And it's going to be connected to one of his main themes, the day of the Lord, which we'll talk about in just a second. Um, Remember, Zephaniah, uh, he lives in the days of Josiah. And Josiah is the last really good king um, in in Judah. And by the time that we get to the end of Josiah's life, we see this certain destruction coming from Babylon. And uh, Zephaniah definitely feels the weight of what's coming from Babylon. Zephaniah is not one of these, he's not like Habakkuk, um, where he's really focused on um, the the mercy of the Lord and living by faith and all of these kind of hopeful themes. Uh, Zephaniah is, is much less hopeful in this regard. Um, but he, he actually does live in the days of, of one of the good kings, which is interesting. So, uh, but he, he recognizes that even Josiah is not enough. Right? Even Josiah is not enough. And the where he prophesied to was the other interesting thing that we that we mentioned, um, and we'll get there. We can maybe talk about this in the outline too, if we wanted to. But um, he he prophesied to Philistia, which is um, to the southeast of of Jerusalem, or sorry, southwest of Jerusalem. Got to get the map right in my head. Southwest to to Moab. And Ammon, which are to the east of Jerusalem, and to Israel, which is to the north, and Assyria, which is to the northeast. And what he's doing there, if you look at Jerusalem on a map, 
is he's drawing a circle around Jerusalem, right? And there's a kind of an interesting thing he does whenever uh, he prophesies uh, against the the nations. So we'll we'll get there in a in a, in a minute on the outline. Okay. Some of the main themes that we already talked about, and the biggest one is this one: the day of the Lord. This is a technical term that a lot of the prophets use, the day of the Lord. And this is the day when everything is made right. So for everything to be made right, that's going to be both bad and good. It's going to be uh, bad or destructive in the sense that for everything to be made right, evil and wickedness has to be destroyed, right? And... uh, in this way, again, Zephaniah is not the most hopeful sounding book because most of the book is about that aspect of the day of the Lord. Is It's as a day of destruction. right? But really more than any other prophet, Zephaniah is constantly talking about this day. The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. The day, the great and mighty day. right? He'll, he'll sometimes use shorthand, but he's saying the day, the day. Right? The day is coming. Um, and the day of the Lord is, is kind of, I think, I think it's great for us in the new Testament church because what it does is it connects the prophets and the old Testament, uh, to Christ ultimately, and also, um, to our own eschatology, our own thinking about the end times, because there are lots of days of the Lord, right? So, um, Immediately for Zephaniah, when he's talking about the day of the Lord as the day of destruction, he's thinking in the near term about the day of the Babylonian exile, right? But then he's also thinking about the return from exile when he talks about the day of the Lord as a day of salvation, But we can look throughout history and see that these these moments in history when things are made right, when the Lord visits his people, either with destruction, with judgment, um, or also with salvation and hope, uh, that there's lots of these days of the Lord. There's the incarnation of Christ, right? There's the, the crucifixion. There's the resurrection, and ultimately there's, and the day that we're really looking forward to is the final day, right? The last day. And this is the day that is truly, if we had to pick one, right, the day of the Lord, right? When, when everything will be finally, ultimately, perfectly um, made right, where there will be no more days of the Lord, right? And... So when we read Zephaniah and we think about the day of the Lord, we can think about all those things, right, in an allegorical way. And I think that's right and salutary. That's why I really like to um, study the minor prophets in Advent, because I think Advent's a great time to think about the day of the Lord. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know. I was just kind of – so that includes, like, 
like Christ's birth, Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, and... Yeah, I think all of those are, in one way, days of the Lord. Then, right? There are multiple days of the Lord. Then finally, then you're done for us. Right. All right. Um, another theme that we mentioned already is the merging of Jew-Gentile. And this... He's very Pauline in this way, way but... Um, that there's two ways in which Zephaniah talks about the Jew and the Gentile kind of merging together as one people. And that God's chosen people, the, the Israelites, um, have, have kind of been merged with the Gentiles. And the first way he talks about that happening is that the Israelites have adopted pagan practices in the land. right? So kind of as a judgment, the Israelites have merged with the Gentiles. And, and that gets to this whole um, ge- geography lesson thing that, that we'll talk about in a second. The second way that he talks about the, the Jews and Gentiles merging is that while they have merged in their sin, they have also and will also be merged in their salvation. Zephaniah is very clear that Gentiles will also be saved by faith. They will be saved in the same way that the, that, that the other nations are, will be saved just like Israel will be saved, um, and that is and that is through the Messiah. That's through Christ. It's um, so we'll talk about that. All right. Uh, and then finally, the the other theme, kind of still connected to that day of the Lord, is um, that on on one side of the day of the Lord. We have the main problem of the book, which is idolatry, the idolatry in Judah. And then on the other side of the day of the Lord, right, when we come out of that day of the Lord, uh, we will have restoration. And he speaks in kind of these creation terms, if you will, that um, the day of the Lord is going to bring about this new creation or this this restoration, the salvation. Right. All right. So those are the the themes. Um, Let's talk about the outline. So the outline, again, is based on this day of the Lord. So the first part of the book is about the day of the Lord as destruction. Day of the Lord. D-O-T-L, the day of the Lord. The second part of the book is the idea of the the day of the Lord as salvation. So Zephaniah kind of preaches a law and gospel sermon here, which is is all right, I suppose. All right, so um, within this first section, we have chapters 1, verses... Uh, 2 through chapter 2 verse 13 and I'm going to go ahead and write all the verses and then I'll tell you what they are 2, 4 through 15 and then 3, 1 through 8 
And this is the day of the Lord as destruction. First of all, destruction for Judah at large. So for the nation of Judah. And then destruction of the other nations. Or to say Gentile. So the word, by the way, in the in the Bible for Gentiles is the word ethnos. Well, at least in the New Testament Greek, but it, the same thing works in Hebrew, um, which just means the nations, right? The people who are not Israel. Okay, so whenever we say nations, we're talking about Gentiles. Um, that's where we get the term ethnicity. And then uh, in three, he circles back around to specifically, not, not even Judah specifically, but Jerusalem specifically, the capital city. Okay. And then in the day of the Lord of salvation, um, he starts with this time in uh, three verses nine and ten with the nation's salvation. And then in three, the rest of the book, 11 through 20, then the salvation for Judah. Okay. So, um, with that said, let's go ahead and, and dive into some of these key passages here. And um, we'll talk about, about some of the things uh, that are happening in that outline as we go through the key passages. Because we have, we have a key passage from each section in the outline, so... Um, we got five different key passages here to go through. All right, so let's. Uh, any questions so far? Uh, yes, sir. Um, never mind. I forgot a lot. Okay, let's look at one verses two, chapter one verses two to three. This is. Um, Sorry, I just was I was looking for something here. Um, so, actually, I want to draw your attention um, to to the middle of of this section first. Um, before, well, we'll just put this up here. Verse seven as well. Verse seven is where we get the first mention of what he's talking about. So, verse seven is be silent in the presence of the Lord. God, for the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guest. Okay, so that, that's the context of what he's talking about here. But let's jump back up to verses 2 and 3. So what's going to go on at this day of the Lord? The, one verse 1 is just an introduction to the book. So this is how the book starts, basically. This is how the prophecy starts. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like the flood. Yeah, it sounds kind <laughs> of like the flood, right? And... Um, Gen Genesis is a good 
starting point, and the flood has a lot of these same things, but we got mentions of land, sea, Creation. fish, animals, right? This sounds like Genesis 1 and man, right? What Zephaniah is doing here is saying that there's going to be a reversal of Genesis 1, right? In Genesis 1, what happens? God, he puts everything in order, right? He separates the waters from the dry ground. He puts the the animals on the land. He puts the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, right? All of these things. Zephaniah here is saying, yeah, the Lord's going to reverse all of that. He's just going to consume all that back up, right? He put it out there. He created it. He put it in order. Now he's saying, I will consume all of that, right, as punishment for the idolatry, right? I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. Um, and and the reason for this, if we keep reading, of course, is, is the idolatry of – I can't help you with that right now. Go see mom. All right. Um, is the idolatry of the people. Actually, it's worth reading verse 4, too. Should, I should also add verse 4 on here. Um, who, who, is, who is he going to do this to? I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place, the names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priest. Right? The, the people who he's going after here is the, the people of Judah, right? the, the nation... Um, that Zephaniah lives in and the nation that this is the nation by which the Messiah is supposed to come. Right. Uh, and and this is how they've been. They've been idolatrous. They've turned to bells there. He Zephaniah says that their priests have merged with these bell priests. Right. That's a, that's something you see in Zephaniah, by the way, is that um, I'm not sure if we'll read any of these passages exactly, but that. There are so when we study the Bible, obviously we read the good prophets, the prophets of the Lord. But there are prophets who claim to be prophets of Yahweh, and priests who are of the tribe of Aaron, right, or of the lineage of Aaron. Uh, they're Levite, you know, Levite priest, um, who also fall into idolatry, right? There are false prophets and false priests. Uh, all all over the place, running around in, in Judah at this time, right? So it's not just. Sometimes I think we think, oh well, you know, there's the prophets and priests versus the kings and the people. That's not really the case. There's a lot of wicked people, including prophets and priests, right? And there's a few good kings and a few good prophets, right? There's a um, a remnant, right? And you do get some remnant language in, in Zephaniah as well. It's not one of the main themes. But there's a couple verses that mention the, the remnant. All right. Uh, so that's uh, that first section, the judgment against Judah. And then let's go to um, 2 verse 11. This is judgment against the nations. Okay. So it goes on about Judah for a while. And then we'll look at 2 verse 11. The Lord will be awesome to them. This is. For he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. P- 
people shall worship him, each one from his place, indeed all the shores of the nations. Okay, so whenever, uh, and then what he goes on to do, by the way, if you just continue to follow um, the the verses after verse 11, is he he lists out um, a bunch of different nations that are going to to be part of this destruction, right? Um, actually, and before that as well, uh, starting yeah, starting in verse four, um, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, right? Um, and I can I can tell you where all these little places are, but the the main I already listed out the the main places that he's referencing is Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Israel, and Assyria. Um, but when the Lord in verse 11, when he says the Lord will be awesome to them and he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth, that the word awesome there, I don't know what your translations say, but um, this is the old, the older sense of the word awesome in English, not like awesome man, like rad, right? It, this is literally inspiring of awe, right? Which can be good or bad, right? Um, something that is massive and like a flood or a hurricane can be awesome, right? Not in the sense that it's awesome that people get their houses destroyed. Um, that, that would sound weird in, in modern English, but... Yeah, but the, the power of it is awesome, right? And and this is what we're talking about here, um, that the, the Lord will be awesome to them and he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth and all people shall worship him, each one from his place. And this is the, the idea here that every knee is going to bow, right? Whenever God, even if people are headed to their eternal damnation um, on the last on the last day, they will still worship the Lord, right? Like everyone has to worship the Lord whenever um, whenever Christ comes again, right? Every knee shall bow and every mouth declare. So people in hell now, right? They, they know who God is now, right? It's too late, but they know who God is. Um, so that's, that's the idea. Now, I want to go back just uh, quickly to this idea of, um, well, let, let's let's go on for one second here. So, and then and then we'll talk about that. So, in uh, three verses one to four, um, we get this focus then on Jerusalem. Okay, so we just talked about the other nations. We talked about Judah at large first, and then we talked about the other nations. And now we're going back to Jerusalem. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted to the oppressing city. Right, this is talking about Jerusalem. And he, the Zephaniah talks about this prophecy talks about Jerusalem as this woman, right? This kind of adulterous woman who has uh, left her her bridegroom. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. Her princes in her midst in her midst are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They leave not a bone till morning. Oh, this is what I was talking about earlier with the prophets and priests. Her pr- prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. Okay? So, and it goes on and on. That 
Jerusalem is this, this like I said, this adulterous woman, right, who has uh, left her husband to worship other gods. And uh, what is, I think, most interesting about this is what, what the Lord, what Zephaniah did here rhetorically is, again, with this geography, is he kind of drew a map. Um, he said, okay, to begin with, you know, here's the land of Judah, right? And this is who I'm talking about, and they are idolatrous. But also, here's Philistia, they're idolatrous, right? And 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 they're very, very wicked. And uh, here's Moab, and here's Ammon, and here's Israel, right? And here's Assyria over here coming in. And, and they're all incredibly wicked. They all worship bells. And by the way, here's Jerusalem, the worst of them all, right? So what he does is he's like drawing a target, right? And then he shoots a bullseye. And he says, Jerusalem is the worst, right? Um, they're the most wicked. So it's kind of a rhetorical device. Excuse me. Um, it's, it's a rhetorical device to, to show who is the center of his issue, right? Where is the center of the problem? Is that the people, this is where the temple is, right? This is the center of where the Christian religion is supposed to be. And they have forsaken their God, right? The priests have polluted that temple, the center temple, right? The temple of, of, of Solomon. And uh, that is a horrendous thing, right? So it's, it's a, I, I, I think it's kind of an interesting and, um, rhetorical device he uses there. All right. Now, we got five minutes to talk about hope. Um, so the book is three chapters, right? And it's not until verse nine, no, verse, yeah, verse nine of the last chapter that he gets to any kind of hope, right? So it's like uh, just over two-thirds, uh, let's say, law, right? And then maybe just a little less than a third gospel. So um, Zephaniah probably would not have passed his homiletics class in seminary, but that's okay. Um, we can still read. We can still read him anyway. All right, so verses uh, 9 and 10, this is the salvation for the nations. Uh, this is what I was mentioning earlier. For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language, that they may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Okay, so what he's saying there when he say, talks about the peoples and when he talks about uh, serving him with one accord, and from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. What he's saying is that these other nations even, 
right? All peoples, that they all may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. And that's the other beautiful thing about this map that he draws is he's saying they've all been judged, right? And even my people have fallen, most of all, prey to this idolatry. But when I bring restoration, I'm not just going to bring restoration for these people and, you know, screw all the rest of them. He's saying, I'm going to bring restoration for the whole darn thing, right? From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. And I think what he's saying when um, he says that my da- the daughters of my dispersed ones is that um, I think everyone knows in the Old Testament that the people of Israel don't do a good job of not intermarrying and and staying um you know, kind of purely the children of Abraham. There's, I mean, by the time we get to Jesus, I, I've i been thinking about this uh, because of a Bible study I'm doing on Genesis at, at Peace Oxford. But um, by the time we get to Jesus, there's, there's no way there's any pure bloods left, right? So it's kind of ridiculous when the Pharisees say, like, we're children of Abraham. Because if you look at the genealogies and the history the Israelites completely intermarry with with non-Israelites. Like, they're, I mean, who knows, especially what's happening in this time of the divided kingdom when they're constantly hanging out with the pagans, right? But besides that, even in Genesis, we have tons of people who fall away from the faith in, in one sense or another um, who have originally had access to the faith and go and end up forming their own pagan nation. So like Lot's kids, for example, um, the the children of Lot end up being the people who form Moab and Ammon, right? Um, but Lot originally had access to the faith. I mean, he's Abraham's brother. And uh, you see that with Noah's sons too, right? Um, you know, Shem didn't do too bad, but then the other the other kids, you know. <laughs> Uh, ended up not doing great, right? But they originally had access to the faith as well. Um, and uh, Or Ishmael. I mean, Ishmael, uh, despite being, you know, the son of this kind of messed up thing that happens with Hagar, Ishmael had access to the faith too. He was given blessing by the Lord, right? Um, the Lord said, it's okay, I'm going to make a great nation out of him too, right? And ultimately his people... Um, ended up denying the faith. But anyway, um, and then within the Israel, like within the sons of Jacob, uh, you get, uh, over the course of history, you get tons of intermarriage. Like, I mean, the, the grandmother of David is Ruth, right? Who's a Moabite. So um, even David is, is only three-fourths, if that, unlikely, but if that, three-fourths, uh, you know, pure Israelite. So anyway, my point in that, why did I bring that all up, um, is that, oh, the daughter of the dispersed ones. So I think when he says the daughter of my dispersed ones, he's saying, look, like I am the God of all people. And even my dispersed people, like the diaspora, um, they have intermarried with everyone. And and really all people come from him anyway, right? All, all people 
I mean, he's the Lord of all creation. All people go back to Adam. All people go back to Noah, right? And so um, when he says the daughter of my dispersed ones, I think he's saying the Gentiles are my children too, right? The Gentiles are also my children. The reason that God chooses the nation, right? The reason that God chooses uh, the nation of Israel and then the nation of Judah and then the tribe of Judah specifically is so that we know where to look for Jesus. That's the reason. The reason is not because uh, the Israelites or the Jewish people are somehow any more special than any of the other nations, right? Or any less prone to sin. In fact, you can see they are just as prone to sin and to reject their Lord. Um, the reason is to bring about Jesus. And then when Jesus comes, he immediately, after he's Israel made one, after he completes his death and resurrection, immediately says, now therefore go to all nations, right? So uh, anyhow, that's, I think that's what's going on when he says, the daughters of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. All right, so that's the nations. But then he does give this special... Um, so after he singled Jerusalem out for being... Oh, wait, I need to get going here. Uh, after he singles Jerusalem out for being... That's wrong. The center of some of the problems here is then he gives Jerusalem um, the final... Hope and salvation that's coming on the day of the Lord as salvation. So uh, in chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, uh, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. And and this is um, the, me- the big messianic prophet prophecy and promise that we get in Zephaniah. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear, Zion, let your hand, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. And, I, and he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I should add verse 17 to that there. Um, and this is about Jesus, right? That Christ is coming and he will be king over Jerusalem and also over the rest of the nations. And on the day of the Lord, when Christ comes, uh, he will save you, right? He, Your judgments will be taken away. Your enemies will be cast out. You shall see disaster no more. Your fear will be gone. He will rejoice over you with gladness and he will quiet you with his love. Right. And so what better promise of of salvation and restoration can we get than that? That when Christ comes, all of this destruction that um, has been brought because of the idolatry uh, will be restored to a perfection of love and beauty and goodness. And Christ will rule as the perfect king. Right. Um, And I, I mean, I'll just end on this one really quick note is that I think that's part of the beautiful promise here is that. What we've seen, and Zephaniah knows, is that there's been so many wicked kings that have messed so much up. And so when Zephaniah says, Christ will be your king, the Lord will be your king, that's an amazing promise. All right, let's uh, close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for this day. 
We pray that our worship today would be in spirit and in truth, that we may be blessed by the reception of your word and your sacraments. We thank you for all that you bring to us today. And we pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.